Welcome to Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer, as always. So, so folks, Sam, out of the kindness of his heart, um, he gave me a gift of an early holiday present in the form of a 51-minute career-spanning Taylor Swift mix. And I'd, I'd just like to like publicly extend my gratitude to Sam for like such a thoughtful gift. Um, I have listened to half of the mix and I can say that, unfortunately, I still don't understand the popularity of T-Swift, but it doesn't matter because uh, the woman is so popular. She's crushing Billboard charts, causing Ticketmaster.com to crash, and um, pretty much single-handedly causing a Department of Justice antitrust investigation into Ticketmaster. So, uh, yeah, don't fuck with Taylor or her Swifties is is, is the lesson, regardless if uh, you like the music or not. But um, speaking of Swifties... Uh, big news today, Sam. I just read that Ticketmaster has 170,000 unsold Taylor Swift tickets for her upcoming Eras tour and that you can enter into a lottery to win a pair of tickets uh, via, quote, Ticketmaster's verified fan request platform, unquote. So, yeah, Sam, you're going to you're going to be signing up for that. No, I'm <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to be signing up. Uh, I'm going to save all my concert summer concert money to see. um Dead and Co. as many po- times as possible on their last tour with both drummers. Uh, big news. Well, we might have to talk about that at some point. Um, but uh, no, in all seriousness, folks, the reason why we're back today and talking Taylor Swift. Why? Why are we doing this? Well, as mentioned before, the megastar has been back in the music headlines basically nonstop since the beginning of November. And she's really good at making headlines. I, I'm actually slightly convinced this is part of her popularity is the fact that she could just be in the headlines like all the fucking time, even like not during an album cycle. But anyways, uh, we thought today we'd dive into why she's been such a newsmaker lately and uh, look into what we often do here on Money for Nothing, and that is determine the merits of each of her albums. No, just kidding. Um, Yeah, we're going to use Taylor Swift headlines as a diving board into a bigger picture as a diving board into a bigger picture, looking at billboard charts and why they matter. And one of the reasons why we're going to do this is because one of the headlines Taylor Swift has been making in the past month is that she entered into the Billboard Hot 100 with the release of her latest record and grabbed all top 10 spots on the Billboard chart, a first in 64 years. But what does that mean, if anything? Well, we'll be discussing that, but first, let's talk this Ticketmaster debacle, as I mentioned at the top. So... If I'm getting it right, Sam, essentially tickets went on sale for Taylor Swift's upcoming tour and the site basically crashed. So like the the most major ticket seller in America, concert ticket seller in America, just the site just crashed. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, basically, right? Like this is like, I feel like this moment was like the confluence of a a bunch of, of a bunch of different things, right? First off, there's been like many superstars, uh, who have been kind of like slowly wading into the waters of super major tours. No one, you know, a tour the size of of Beyonce or Taylor Swift tour is like enough money down that they're not going to risk like a weird new surge coming and like disrupting this multi, multi, multi million dollar production spectacle work of art. Like whatever, whatever a modern tour is, like whatever that like bread and circus is production is and so my sense is that like a lot of superstars even as like live music has like very much come back not necessarily for indie artists but like you know people are touring again the really really top big names been more or less like 
been been waiting and so we're starting to see the announcements of these you know like the ultra a-list talents like beyonce's and taylor swift's of the world and so it's been a while right and and so there's a lot of people who are really excited to see taylor swift especially because she had a really productive pandemic pre-pandemic i mean my i was uh like she seemed to be kind of like on a little bit of a, of a decline a little bit um and then just like dropped two albums that were just immensely successful uh it like folky autumnal very like pinterest curated albums so like there's massive demand plus there's been this whole weird and like legitimately scammy like verified pre-sale thing um where basically and this is important for for things that do sell out where you know people get access to like tickets are released early to certain groups and then there's this kind of like dynamic almost like surge pricing for tickets and it can often be like surge pricing for tickets depending on when they're released even so i i know again i know this from dead and co stuff <laughs> is that like the pre-sales will often be more expensive than the, the the regular release tickets because there'll be like a surge of interest in certain seats during a pre-sale so this basically was there's massive demand there are these weird like market fluctuate you know these these market um dynamics where like the ticket prices are changing depending on how much interest there is and Ticketmaster puts all of the shows it's not like selling trying to add like one or two shows it puts all of the shows on sale at the same time and like not not like a staggered sale it was like every every single tour every single tour date and just an unbelievable number of people try to sign up for a limited number of tickets (laughs) yeah was it like 17 million or something that were like on the site at the same time which i don't even know if that's like a big number but i I guess i guess it's enough to crash Ticketmaster. i mean it's a lot and so people there were all these horror stories and that was part of i think the anger it's like all these people were like oh i've been waiting for half an hour i've been waiting for four hours been waiting for nine hours and then like it kicks me off for no reason even though i was there and so like it just felt uh unfair and capricious and um, like a really negative selling yeah. experience for for someone who like really tailors, no pun intended, <laughs> her releases to like connect with her fans, and it felt like it was necessarily being pushed through this like ugly, terrible interface that disappointed everyone, that crashed, that's charging them a ton of extra right, fees, right. and so just the anger yeah. really bubbled up and bubbled o- over. Yeah, so it pissed off the Swifties, as they're called. And then there was public statements made by Taylor Swift comparing it to like a bear attack or something and, 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 you know, clarification about how, you know, her team made sure the Ticketmaster could handle the load and all this stuff. And now, amazingly, Ticketmaster is under investigation by the Department of Justice for antitrust violations that, I mean, potentially, I highly doubt it, but potentially could lead to the breaking up of Ticketmaster, (laughs) correct? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Look, it's good to have competition. I, I actually, think, I actually, I actually think that the state should should own all all ticket sales. That that that's my opinion. Is that for all all entertainment should go through the U.S. government? <laughs> yeah, 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 and that will produce amazing. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I think it would be dope if there were some public venues, more public venues. I mean, they're public yeah, private public venues, venues, but that's not the same. Yeah, maybe for another episode. But like, whatever happened to like you know like the rich billionaire millionaire like you know building. Uh, a library or like a concert 
venue. <laughs> like, well, they do. I mean, there's Carnegie Hall. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. So, what happened to that though? Like, what? <laughs> well, I mean, there's crypto. I, mean, listen, there's I don't crypto really want. To. I don't really want to attend like Musk Amphitheater, <laughs> but like, I mean, I would if it was public. <laughs> um, but they're never public. They're always like that's true. That weird, is true. Yeah. Semi-public. Like Carnegie Hall is not owned by New York. That's true. No, that is true. That is true. No, but but so 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 yeah. So they're they're like. They're they they are rightfully angry at Ticketmaster. This is a terrible experience for people who this is very important to. Um, and I think we've talked about this a little bit before in in um, our episode about Bruce Springsteen. And I do and I do think that they're right that you know competition is good. And I think that when you don't have competition, you don't know what kind of cool inventive things can happen. Like monopolies are bad, and who knows like what solutions to these problems could get made like clearly like ticket there's there's in no world is it better that Ticketmaster and live nation are the same thing right that said i don't know how you solve the problem of there being way more taylor swift fans than taylor swift tickets period you know what i mean like, unless Taylor Swift yeah. is going to do yeah. something, like, really remarkable where she's like, we're just going to, like, Fugazi this thing and every ticket's going to be $50 and I'm going to play a thousand shows. Like... The Garth Brooks method. Yeah, yeah, the Gar- yeah, really, the Garth Brooks method. Shout out to, to Garth Brooks who would just... Whenever he played a show, uh, if it sold out, he would just play another show there until it no longer sold out. <laughs> what a man. But, like, unless Taylor Swift does something like that, like... The the problem here is, I think, like, fundamentally, like, it seems, like, as bad as, like, and maybe, like, if there was competition, Ticketmaster, it would have been a better experience. But I don't think you, the fundamental problem here is that, like, in, in a society where you're, 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 like, people are increasingly focused on experiences as a way to, like, organize, especially, like, commodified experiences as a way to, like, organize social meaning which means there's a tremendous amount of desire to go see Taylor Swift as like an important part of these people's lives. And there's so many of these people, like, I don't know what the solution is. And like, weirdly, I don't see why, like, that's Ticketmaster's fault. Like, even if the site didn't crash, a lot of people would have been disappointed. Yeah, it, it seems to be more about the, just the actual experience of like waiting for the tickets and like not getting them than just like going and seeing like immediately that it was sold out. That said, I do I do support, and I think we've talked about this before. Like we looked into this a little bit in our episode about actually about Ticketmaster, and there's a lot of um, there's some new there's some interesting legislation I think that's being uh, I think actually Schumer's supporting it. That basically like changing the the laws so that you see the final ticket price, not the price before all the added fees, which I actually think would make a lot of sense. Though in a complicated way, we, we've learned. Um, again go back to our episode about Ticketmaster that a lot of those fees are actually sometimes being split by the artist sometimes the only place that the venues make money because someone like Taylor Swift is able to demand so much such a high percentage of the gate right. from of the gate and sometimes even of the merch sales probably the merch sales too for someone like Taylor Swift so like the venue need can't be like isn't a public service and needs to be making money um and I do think that that like weird passing of the buck as a system makes a lot of people angry 
and the music industry should just be like more upfront yeah, about yeah, it, it lacks tra- yeah. why why the pie is being divided the way it is. And I actually think that like a little bit of honesty and clarity would go a long way. If it's like Taylor Swift is getting eighty dollars and the venue gets ten dollars because like the venue needs to like needs to exist <laughs> too. Like I don't love PNC Arts Bank Arena, but like I do I do admit that it's giving me a service when I'm inside of it. Right, right. Yeah, no, a little transparency would probably make like definitely go a long way and kind of halt this sort of narrative around like the good guy, bad guy thing because it, it does get more complex. But uh, we don't want to go too much down this Ticketmaster road. It'll definitely be something we'll be keeping an eye on regarding the antitrust uh, investigation. And as Sam mentioned, if you're interested to hear us talk more about Ticketmaster, well, you're in luck because we did a whole episode on it. So go check that out. Two, really. But, uh, I guess two, really. Uh, Ticketmaster and the boss goes bust. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I guess uh, I guess you could say that the fervor for Taylor Swift tickets shouldn't have come in as any surprise for Ticketmaster. Um, not only is she obviously a huge megastar, but also in the last week of October... She made headlines by entering Billboard's Hot 100 with the top 10 spots being made up entirely of songs from her recently released album, Midnight's. And this is unprecedented. Um, It's never happened in the 64-year history of the charts. But who cares? This is the kind of headline article we tend to be seeing a lot over the past few years. I remember like a few years ago, maybe you recall, like, remember like Future had like all of his songs from an album and like the hot, like in the Hot 100? And so, like, you know, we see these... And Drake on Certified Lover Boy did 9 out of 10. Right, right, right. And so we go, oh, shit, wow, that's so fucking crazy. But, like, none of these articles seem to, like, really explain, like, what it means. Like, what like what, what are the Billboard charts? And, like, what is the Hot 100? And, like, how is this shit calculated? And, like, it's often, I think, a sort of example of also, like, a sort of lack of, like, critical take in journalism and musical journalism. Like, chart-topping success, quote-unquote, is just seems to be like regurgitated into headlines without any kind of real like understanding of like what the charts are well uh and like why we should um care <laughs> so you know that's why we're here today for you okay so it's like we said taylor got into the top 10 with 10 songs dope she's popular we know that but what does it mean and what are the charts anyways so sam before we dive into a history of the charts Maybe you can answer some of these questions. What are the charts good for? And like, what exactly are they doing? It seems like a simple question, right? Like, what are the charts doing? And I think that's really the crux of what we're going to be talking about today. Because you'd think, right? Like, they're counting up the most popular songs. End of episode. But the more you dig into that statement, the more it ends up that they're doing like a very subtle, complicated thing. They're counting up the most popular records in the country. How? Because there's a lot of different metrics that you can imagine counting how you'd count up records. And then the question is, who are they counting up for? We know that partially the charts are are produced by the record industry, kind of for the record industry. So one valid way to think about them is like, counting up which albums make the record industry the most money. But that's a very different like chart than counting up which is the most popular song in the country. And then if you think if you think about that, 
like you start getting questions like okay popular but like popular how like is it popular among the group of people that listen to music really intensely and make that a major part of their lives you know and and are the major market who are like going back and back and back and like paying for or is it like popular among like the really broad pop populace that like picks up a couple of top 10 hits every so often and listens to them and really like how you define how you how you uh design that chart how you think about that chart depending on all those different possibilities would look really different and in some ways like during its lifetime like the various charts have have looked all different kinds of ways to do all those different kinds of things so in, in some ways the somewhat unsatisfying answer to the question what do the charts do is what do the people making the charts at that moment want them to do or like more more like less conspiratorially it's what is the relationship between the charts and the society slash music industry that's producing them at a given moment which can often be sometimes it's the industry trying to get the charts to do something but a lot of times it's a much more complicated like funhouse mirror reflecting thing where like the charts can actually be saying stuff about how the industry, how society is valuing different kinds of music, different communities of music, different kinds of consumption that maybe they don't, they don't even realize that they're saying that because those assumptions are just baked in. So, I mean, going back to Taylor Swift right now, these charts, the, the Hot 100 chart is based off of a, you know, compiled by Billboard, it's based off a mixture of streaming where paid streaming is counted more than unpaid streaming. Radio plays some, record sales, and digital downloads some, with I believe, like physical, you know, and then micro variations within all those categories in this like broad, complicated algorithm, and so that's counting up kind of at a mass market level, counting up all of these inputs from basically everyone who's interacting with music and giving you a kind of single number. And then connecting those numbers to, to count up which is most popular. Yeah, and it's becoming even more. Yeah, and it's becoming even more complicated now because of things that we often talk about on this show, which is like there's just so many more touch points for music now. Yeah, there's so many to more touch points for music, and and the way that people are listening to music clearly is changing. So it's funny, right? There was all this stuff, <laughs> sex, and you'll remember, probably, dear listeners, you'll remember about the death of the album. Remember, and it sure looks to me like, in a weird way. This album, at least this 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 round, is the death of the single. There is a single on this, Antihero, but that entire album was in the top 10. It beat all the singles from all the other artists where one song is being pushed because people are just listening or streaming in various places and some of the various touch points or purchasing as a whole the entire album front to back it's not that long and so in some ways it, it gives this picture of uh, of a uh, um almost like a musical monoculture right like that one artist's release can can swamp it th- this hard but there's also this question right like given the fact that this is clearly these charts now are clearly like just such a mass a snapshot of, of, of musical listening at such a mass level is like is musical listening that that's that that is so divorced from anyone's experience like does it does it even tell us anything 
does that tell tell me anything about music in America or like the social experience of music in America that a segment of people in this country are listening to Taylor Swift this much? Like it tells me some things, but I don't know. It, it can feel so removed from from like individualized yeah. or localized or community or regional um, or genre practices that like it becomes like oh, almost like a meaningless statistic. Yeah, you know, actually, you know, a thought I just had. It's almost as if like the demand for ticket sales is probably like a better determination of like an artist's current popularity than it is like whatever the charts are saying. So like Billboard like added streaming songs to the metrics back in 2012, and like that obviously the criteria has like changed as you mentioned but like if i'm reading this correctly you know like waiting page streams like on spotify heavier than unpaid ones or like you know 1500 streams of any song on one record equals one listen to that record like this, <laughs> this like if you unpack all that it just becomes like like i mean i don't it just seems like it doesn't mean anything or it means like oh like the billboard charts are determining people who like have the affordable income to like uh pay for spotify opposed to like the free service and like that doesn't seem to be an accurate picture of really anything other than like maybe taylor swift's fans are more uh have more of a flexible income or something you know it's it becomes like just so murky not to mention the fact that given in the in the oldest story in the music industry right given the fact that if you're a number one song, it gets you more attention. It gets you added to more things. Like it was good for Taylor Swift to have these kind of number one hits. We know that there's a lot of fake streams. We know that. It's not that hard to do. And that increasingly my sense is like, you know, (laughs) record labels are going to record label. (laughs) And like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, who knows how... Some bots of these data bots. sources are, are <laughs> compiled. What, what what do you say? I said bots are going to bots. Yeah, bots are going to bot. Record labels are going to record label. And like, so, there, you know, there's that there's that extra level of, of lack of clarity. And that's that's not a knock on the streaming industry. Like, this was done, as we'll touch on a couple times, like, this was done with, like, real physical records as well, for sure. But it's just always... There's many levels of opacity between that very crisp, clear number on the page and the actual messy realities of what it's telling you about. I will say, though, that it's also important to mention that, like, while we're kind of like, okay, what does it mean? It's kind of murky. Like, does it really, like, offer us, like, a clear picture of, you know, a record or a song's like popularity? As I said earlier, People write about it. It makes headlines. And if you make those headlines, then it becomes a selling point. And that could like increase people's interest in the music, which can just compound. And then they're like, you know, they're looking for it to go see Taylor Swift or they're looking to hear the record or they're looking to like pick up the magazine which she's on the cover of. So, I mean, there is like also this huge like publicity um, sort of domino effect that also does happen from this, which I also think is why it's so important that we unpack these charts. Because like, even if like we start this conversation being like, it's kind of murky, like what it actually is saying in regards to like an artist's popularity in this country or in the world, it like has this effect. Like it, like I was saying earlier, it makes all these headlines, and of course those headlines bring attention to the artist, and it goes on and on from there. And in fact, in in doing research for the show, I read I read this article called um, "Mediality in the Music Chart." by Will Straw, 
which argues in this really interesting way that one of the things that charts do is allow us to have kind of clean narratives about music that it takes the like the part of their almost like their ideological job <laughs> why they're useful in modern society is they take this not just in the level of like information but the level of narrative they allow us to tell stories clear rise and fall stories about records in ways that like you're saying the media uses that we use in our own lives to like make sense of really this like incredibly complicated pop music universe where you know as we've talked about before especially pre-streaming you could have you could imagine right like everyone buying a record that record becoming irrelevant people starting to listen to that record and have it influence them again all of which is really important for the music industry none of which would be captured by sales data and you know just as an example of the kind of the, the incredible density and complexity of the social life of music and that charts are a way to like make a clean simple understandable discussable object of knowledge out of that messiness and even though like the kind of the format of the chart which has been unchanged since basically its beginning right there's like one two three four five six seven eight nine ten it doesn't tell you in the basic billboard chart the space between one and two usually right like one can way outsell two and some charts do indicate that but like the basic chart the basic mechanism of the chart is a like a one through ten distribution and even that in some ways reshapes uh reshapes the messier realities of what could be all kinds of distributions right like it could be a logarithmic distribution where number one of the chart is miles and miles past number 10 or it could be really closely uh filtered and sometimes like even if you have the numbers on the right side like the basic mechanism of the chart doesn't suggest a certain clarity and equality that the actual materials it's describing don't necessarily have you could have a chart that's just every record that sold over 500,000 copies and sometimes there's only one thing in the chart and sometimes there's four right and that could tell you more than a constant one to ten when when like the the numbers don't need to you know like it it, it's a, the basic format of the chart suggests that the distance from 10 to 9 and the distance from 2 to 1 are the same, but that is never true. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point that actually kind of leads to into the history of the charts where I think it was very, well, yeah, they're very not equivalent across yeah, time. Yeah, it very, very clearly was used to create a narrative, um, oftentimes, you know, by the record industry. And an interesting thing happened um in in the 90s where like it changed and all of a sudden like that narrative was kind of exposed for being somewhat fictional but before we get to the 90s like maybe maybe it's a good moment to just sort of like dive into a little back history of like you know how these charts even came to be and like why we even happen to pay attention to them so much It's too late to stop the train. 
from what I can tell, um, and I've run into this in my research some, uh, the early charts are actually very industry focused. Coming still from Billboard magazine, um, which, as we've mentioned before, was originally a magazine about billboards before it kind of <laughs> switches to the entertainment industry that was putting most of the papers on the billboards. And early on, it's kind of this um, very much industry-focused uh, pre-recorded music, even. It's kind of a tracking, an incredibly unscientific tracking of theater plugs. So... This is when uh, this is when the publishers are paying artists to perform songs in theaters, and Billboard starts to keep track of which songs, and, and sometimes our performers would also just sing songs because they were popular. So there's always from the beginning there's that weird mixture of like this is tracking advertising and this is tracking popularity, um, and none of it is tracking the actual sales because that was too hard to get the information on in many ways. But yeah, it's tracking singers performing songs in theaters in like the the early decades of the 20th century. And then as recording and live and live and and why? It's kind of so it's kind of a good question. Some of it is because this is there's an intense competition between the publishers about who can get these plugs so in some ways it's saying how efficient is your promotional apparatus um in some it kind of tells performers or other people like if you're in a small town and you know that this song is being performed in chicago actually you want it performed in your town because your town wants to be listening to what the people in chicago are listening to and so this is like information about what's popular in the Chicago theaters, for example. Fascinating. And as it goes on, in a really interesting decision that I, I would love to know more about, because it seems to be like really indicative for the shape of the music industry going forward, they continue to track like performances. I mean, and performances on record. Um, rather than songs. So this is a period of time where publishers are still at the core of the music industry. So a big song would have multiple hit performances, re- recordings um, made of the same composition, right? And the charts start to track the records rather than the songs, which you could imagine, given especially given the fact that there is ASCAP at this period of time, there's about to be BMI, they could have probably tracked which rec- like which compositions are most popular but they don't they track recordings and then you're kind of off more or less to the races where they're again in this kind of industry way tracking which first like music rolls for player pianos and then edison cylinders and then victrola record discs and then you know 78s which are selling the best and then again, for the why, is my sense is is at least during this period of time, and, and, and this is a period of time when, when Billboard is very much a an industry trade magazine, right? It's not being read by normal people. It's entirely, it's for the industry, more or less by the industry. Uh, arguably, 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 the charts are probably still not being read by most people, but <laughs> outside sure, of the headline. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, the bigger change is Billboard is still kind of like this variety, which was the other trade press is now, you know, 
in your local uh, in your local supermarket. So yeah, even at this period of time in the 30s, 40s, 50s, it, it, it's more like here's what's selling the best so that let's say you're a record store, you know what to stock up on. Or if you're a, uh, a label, you can know like what's selling so you can decide what to release or what to sign um, or, or how, to, how to promote your material. And from the beginning, it's, it's really interesting and complicated that there are all these decisions made about how to construct the chart that reflects both like industry interests and then also like the racial structures of American life. So, you know, you've got different things. One is you start getting different charts for different kind of like specific markets within the broader American record buying public, right? You get a specific country chart. You get a specific chart um, designed to try to capture what's happening in black music, which is actually started by Billboard in 1942 under the name The Harlem Hit Parade, (laughs) which is rough. Right, Um, right, right. And then it becomes... Uh, I think like race records, um, r- rhythm and blues, uh, R and B, which is actually invented by Atlantic's Jerry Wexler when he's working at Billboard. He's just he's like, oh, we're gonna call it R and B, and that's where the name for that genre came from. Um, which also kind of gives you a sense of how powerful these charts are in in counting and capturing things, and what kind of records get on what kind of charts. And which record stores or radio stations are being polled to con- to create which charts, and how those methodologies are decided by the people making the charts, really like fundamentally shapes the evolution, or is, is a major shaping force on the evolution of American music in this period of time. So, you know, my, my sense is that one of the reasons you start getting the the, the top one hundred that Taylor Swift just absolutely dominated is in rock and is in the rock and roll era when all of a sudden the distant the difference between black and white music starts to decline among the american buying public and it makes sense to have a single chart that starts to capture kind of that mass data similarly there's all kinds of crazy stuff where there are all these rules about what could or couldn't be counted on the charts that really shaped um like for instance, the focus on hits. So if a if a song was kind of or a record was kind of floating in the bottom part of the charts for too long, they would just yank it. <laughs> it would be like this record has been at number fifteen for five weeks, and we're just gonna we're gonna take it off the charts because it's not interesting to us anymore. Which clearly does things like you know promotes a constant turnover of new hits at the expense of you know songs that you know kind of slow burners of the kind that in the modern music industry are incredibly profitable and successful right and so 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 eventually kind of like to fast forward a little bit like it kind of goes through multiple different sort of phases and it, it, it comes down to basically like at one point like billboard is like calling record stores to get numbers and then it's not necessarily like on the sales it's like on the on the the uh, how much how many records were were sent to a record store, and then it kind of goes to these different transformations into the '90s, right? But ultimately, what we're kind of like learning though from this like this early history is that it's always been a little bit arbitrary and a promotional tool, and like for the industry itself in a lot of ways. 
and shaped by the industry itself yeah, yeah. shaped by the industry and 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 but also like in it, it reminds me a lot in some ways about our discussions about copyright right like mm-hmm. i think that there's this idea that there's like there should be a right way to do the charts right like there's a fair way out there to like count popularity or to count record sales or to count record listens and the more i learn about this and the more i learn about like the different moments in chart history and chart construction it's clear that it's always like an awkward fit where like you're trying to condense the incredible complexity of musical activity into like a picture and it's similar to like uh it's similar to a map really where any map is going to if you put every piece of information that you could have about a place on a map it would be unreadable right and certain maps need elevation certain maps need subway systems certain maps need uh sewer lines and it depends what you're trying to get at. But there's no one right way to map a landscape. And similarly, there's no one right way to create a chart. So, for example, in this kind of 70s period, like you were saying, Saxon, they call certain stations and not others. They ask certain record stores and not others. It allows the industry kind of famously in the disco era to ship lots of records, have them in the stores so they count as sales, push songs to the top of the charts, Records that are later returned back to the record label, but they had already gotten their number one hits. <laughs> and at one level, that allowed the major labels to, well, almost drive themselves into the ditch, like R.I.P. Casablanca Records. But also, it allowed certain kind of taste-making record stores to break songs, or it allowed smaller labels to get access to could smaller labels could focus on specific record stores to get picked up by this broader information system in the way that if the charts are counting every sale at every Walmart, a small indie label is just not is going to find it much more difficult to compete to get onto the charts so that they can then get noticed so that then they can then get kind of like whipped up into the industry because at some level the industry's always sort of shaping um shaping the evolution of music by throwing promotional bucks here and not there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I mean, at this point in the era of the charts, it kind of feels like that's part of its use in the sense that it, like, you know, not only supposedly supposed to like direct, the, or not only like reflects the interest of the buyers, but also kind of actually really direct the interest of the buyers. And, you know, also, like you said, like narrativize the music in society and also I guess also helps like the record labels like and their investment in like certain genres or certain acts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's so. And, and what's so fascinating is that there's a huge change in '91 with what we, what I guess we could call like the sound scan era, which is basically suddenly giving the charts like a much more accurate information because it's actually charting. Sorry, it's counting because it's actually counting the scans of barcodes where music is sold and and what kind of happens is like it turns out that the understanding of like what's popular and like what's like a definite sell and like what's necessarily not going to sell and maybe doesn't deserve as much investment it kind of turns out actually is possibly a little bit inaccurate and they've actually they're like wrong about a lot of stuff and that's when you start to see sort of like the rise of like grunge and hip-hop and like country yeah so 
like you said, sound scan is this new technology where they start tracking barcodes. And what's really interesting is I went back to some of the like kind of like coverage and some of the scholarly reportage from the 90s. I was trying to write when it was when these changes were happening. And it's really, really interesting. Right. So at one level, you know, it's much more accurate. At another level, there was still this huge disparity in like which stores had the barcodes. Right. Like Walmarts could put them in, but smaller record stores couldn't. Whole genres of music, like gospel music, that was mo- more likely to be sold at Chris- Christian bookstores, where they sold records, but only a select few. And, it, you know, so they didn't install SoundScan um, until much later, if at all. So it seemed like this objective objective vision of what was happening in the record industry but still there's always these these dynamics of um what gets counted and what doesn't it's also a sound scan it was kind of the information was proprietary right and so certain labels were able to buy access to this like you know data knowledge power from this stuff and other labels i would guess indie labels didn't get the like detailed sound scan readings that the majors were able to get and so at least partially, there's an argument that some of the consolidation you get is a result of the major's increased ability to to know what's happening on the ground, um, sometimes even know what's happening better than indies. It's also an incredibly fascinating, I went down this rabbit hole a little bit, as you were saying, kind of the record industry. Increasingly, I've been thinking about it, you know, it's 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 useful to say the record industry if we're talking about like maybe like the majors, right? But there's a lot of different record industries in this country, and some of them knew. And so apparently there had actually been a long time reluctance by black record store owners and black record stores to report their sales to Billboard. Interesting. And and they were reluctant to tell Billboard what was being sold because they knew that some of these records were really selling. And they believed apparently accurately given i mean there was a massive decline in independent record stores across the country in the mid-90s but it hit black record stores uh, apparently according to some of the stuff i've read particularly hard they were worried that if the mainstream what like kind of big box white record sellers had an accurate knowledge that they would just stock let's say the top 10 rap albums they would be able to sell them cheaper than the smaller black-owned record store, and they would just kind of skim off the top and then let the black record store sell all the less popular stuff for more expense and and, and kind of take off the, the, the huge hits that really helped them pay the bills, which is... Exactly what, which is exactly what happened, right? You start having like the top four or five record stores sold in like, sorry, you have the top four or five like rap records being sold in, I don't know, Circuit City for ten ninety nine, but not a hundred rap records, not like the deep catalog that a, a, a more specialized record store could have. It's just the ones that are really going to sell. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge economic aspect to this whole conversation that I think is like so important because also you have to consider, you know, and this obviously carries over into the age of like you know downloading mp3s but you have to consider like you know it's tracking sales so it's tracking like what people can afford who can actually go out and like have the 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 money to actually go and like buy the actual record itself and then like you're saying yeah there's this whole capitalist aspect of it of like gobble up the small 
like under undercut the small the small like you know mom and pop like record store or whatever and by having like, a couple things that you sell cheaper instead of a broader deeper selection that's necessary to like support a culture right yeah and i mean you know i kind of think about that i was actually just having this conversation just a little antidote i was having this conversation with somebody recently about like the lack of like uh punk record stores like in southern california where i grew up like and how there used to be all these like kind of small punk record stores or kind of like a place to like hang out almost you know like even some of them had like you know a little mm-hmm. quarter pipe in the background or whatever and they're all they're all gone now and it you know it's it's part of it is like not necessarily because of the fact that like um directly because of this same sort of reason although i did find it interesting when like i remember the first time like you know i don't know early 2000s or whatever when i was like happening to be like wandering through a target with my mom and then i'm like seeing like punk records like in the display and i'm like what they sell that here and it's of course like four or five dollars cheaper maybe not that much but a lot cheaper than like what i was what i could buy it for at like you know the punk store but also you know there was also like the chain record stores like warehouse and stuff like that and they're all undercutting like the mom and pop or like the independent record stores and you know obviously there's other reasons why they've all disappeared you know increase in rent you know development because of like free money or it's from you know low interest rates whatever in the last 13 years all of them disappearing but like it's an interesting aspect we have to take into consideration when like talking about the charts is that it's like about sales it's about expendable income and th- and this is just adds like another like interesting like layer to it and it's about lumping right that's that's what i got from that story and it helped me rethink some of what happens in the 90s where the major let the major labels make a ton of money because if they can push something that everyone is going to buy it's incredibly incredible incredibly lucrative but for a music to develop something that everyone's going to buy there's usually like a dense ecosystem behind it and their ability because of sound scan partially to just come in and skim off the top often at the expense of these ecosystems right maybe helps 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 uh, as another contributing factor to the centralization that happens over the course of the 90s just thinking out loud here like it seems like it also could like lead to like a sort of centralization of like certain styles and genres and sounds of music as well yeah and, and that's actually what really one of the major concerns that occurs in 2012 which is also probably the next truly huge change to how the charts are being calculated right so you get through the 2000s you start having digital downloads you start having streams being incorporated which does change stuff um but the next really huge change is when billboard decides to fundamentally reimagine how it's doing the genre charts in particular the i guess like i think it was called the urban chart then it's really rough the history of like black music chart names is really, really rough. And the country charts, which are kind of in some ways the two um, like really dominant like musical subcultures, I would say that it run really from the beginning of the record industry when there's kind of like the mainstream, which is tied to Broadway, there's black music and there's um, old time slash hillbilly music. And like, that's still true. (laughs) Um, Right. Different names, different groups, but like those strains as communicating musical subcultures um, with, uh, I would say, like a variety of Latinx musics awkwardly integrated in various complicated ways. Um, And probably like if you want to see the record industry dropping the ball, it's their failure to consistently capitalize on like Mexican, what they, I think the official 
chart designation, at least the last time I, I checked, was like, quote unquote, like Mexican regional music, which is a lot of like Norteño music, um, which sells a ton of records and is like, my understanding is like pretty consistently undervalued by the industry. But that's an aside. In 2012, they totally change how these charts are being determined. And this I'm basing on some fabulous like reportage um, at the time by uh, Chris Mulfany, uh, who does the wonderful Hit Parade show um, podcast on Slate and, and writes for them a lot about the charts. And basically, previously, the charts had been, I guess, uh, mostly radio-based as kind of indications of what those communities, like the country listening community and like the rap slash R&B listening music community, what they were listening to. And they change in 2012 to any song that is released by an artist that is designated as being in those genres is counted in those charts. And so at one level, right, this seems like a good change. There's a lot of reasons why radio plays or a chart that's primarily based on radio plays is like unrepresentative, but only because as as the as Billboard says, radio is a push format so that people aren't really choosing. They can choose the station they listen to, but they're not really choosing which song is on the radio. And at one level, so it's like great, it's more representative, right? But what critics at the time say, and I'm inclined to agree with them, is that what it does is it means that records that touch the mainstream of listeners outside of the core constituencies that listen to those styles of music, anything that hits the mainstream is then going to dominate the music charts. And actually, Taylor Swift got a huge amount, who's kind of the object of criticism of this change. She had a song out, um, I believe it's uh, You and I Are Never Ever Ever Getting Back Together, which it's like a good power pop song. I, I really like that song, actually, but it's not a very country song. And Taylor Swift had released country records and so was sometimes on the country chart. But that wasn't really a country song, but the mainstream pop audiences bought it. And so what it meant was that it was like a number 15 hit on the, the, the Hot 100 chart, but it was a number one country hit. And country listeners were like, this isn't a country song. Why do you get to decide what is or is not a country song? And similarly, it means that Gungam Style was a number one rap hit because Psy was a rapper and so it was a rap song. Even if the Hot 97 or the audiences that are really invested in you know, using Hot 97, the, the big um, New York City rap station, as kind of like a proxy, right? Like the central audiences that are invested in these styles of music and the communities built around them didn't listen to that song necessarily. They could, and like if it was played on Hot 97, but like at the time, Ebro Darden, who was the station manager of Hot 97, was like, we're not playing this song. It's not the number one rap song in America. We've never played it. And so, again, there's this sense of the battles over the charts and, and how what you're trying to get the charts to represent. And, and, and Chris, in, in some of the writing at the time about this, is kind of arguing like what you're not getting then if you're doing this is you're erasing the sense of these charts as an analysis of what specific musical communities, however defined, are how they're listening and what they're listening to. And instead, you're saying kind of as songs cross genres, they get put into different buckets. 
And arguably, like, some of the, like, weird kind of all genres melding together that people have talked about a lot from, like, 2016, 2017 onwards is is um, the foundation for that is laid by these different chart formats where all of a sudden you it's very easy for songs that can get a hold on the Billboard 100 to top like the rap charts in a way that wasn't true prior to 2012. And again, you get the sense of like the and which you know with all the the impl- potential implications for concert bookings and sales and attention that follows from that. Okay, so like bringing it up today and like going full circle back to our discussion about Taylor Swift making headlines around grabbing all top 10 spots on the Hot 100. Like what what do we take from this? Like what 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 does it really mean if anything? What what what, what do you think it says about Taylor Swift's popularity, about the charts, about her place in society, in the music society, like whatever. Let's, let's So for let's one, go. it does feel it feels like Mimi to me a little bit in that I feel like one of the things we see in like the cultural conversation right now, maybe because like folks are real separated by the pandemic, maybe because of like the viral dynamics of the internet, I don't know, is that when something gains momentum, everyone wants to jump onto it so they can be part of the conversation and like experience whatever short period moment is happening, right? So, there is, you know, everyone's doing the Wednesday Adams dance now on TikTok. Everyone. Or pick pick your favorite fad <laughs> from the last, like, two to three years. And I'm not saying that Taylor Swift is a fad, but I'm saying, like, I think our internet-based cultural consumption is more fatty. Because when something big is happening, everyone wants to check it out so that they can talk about it on whatever social media platform they want to talk about it on. And so it does feel like you see bigger, like where something happens or like with the, the running up the hill, Kate Bush song where it just like explodes. Um, and everyone's listening to it. And you hear it everywhere in restaurants, and like you hear it everywhere, <laughs> like bars, in restaurants, yeah. in cars, yeah. in bars. Exactly. 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 And so like, I wonder like part of it feels like maybe that like we're having like as a culture having like higher amplitude, higher frequency changes in things that things really spike. And then because there's a mo it's a moment, you know, it's, it's one of the top five trending Twitter topics um, in the olden days. And like, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, let's not talk about Twitter. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, this is probably getting a little bit too heady, but, thought. but I, yeah, no, I also, I also think that like in, in perhaps it's like a sort of this this greater attempt at trying to like grasp a hold of like something that is uh or that like centers and orients like our understanding of like culture right now in a sense and like you know obviously Mm -hmm. that'd be happening like on a more subconscious level but just like the fact that because there's just so much more information being thrown at us and because like news cycles or like trends or fads like happen and go through their cycle like such a quicker rate now and because there's so many like micro genre upon micro genre niche upon niche upon subreddit upon subreddit that it's like kind of like i almost feel like sometimes i see this in the news headlines where like even the news seems like it doesn't really know exactly what it should be covering i sure and so i don't know maybe in a weird way when something does become 
so massively popular like we kind of like grab a hold of it and then we kind of like compound it and make it like even more popular because it's like something to grab a hold of that we can all sort of like relate to because all of us are kind of in our atomized existence listening to our like micro sub genre reading our like like subreddit of a subreddit like information you know and so it's kind of like in a weird way and this is what i think we've talked about as well on the show like the weird way in which like mass culture or pop culture maybe in like our klf show we talked about that like actually does i mean i don't mean it's not corny but like bring people together in a sense kind of in the same way that maybe like a sporting event like sure. brings people together so you're grasping onto anything so you're saying it's like it's like the popularity of something like this and the attention paid to the feet but also maybe like we're saying in this case that maybe the charts actually did capture the wave of popularity and interest in this album is partially because of yeah, it's just like people being super interested in connecting with other people based on pop culture. Or, or, I mean, or, like, or, also- like, or like, I'll just add, if you, if, sorry to interrupt, but I'll just add that like, it's kind of like a weird like symbiotic yeah. relationship where it's like we read the headline and then we're like, oh, that's a big deal. And then like, you know, then we're like interested in it. And then like, you know, I don't know. It's kind of like going back and forth. Like it's like, you know, and then that increases the sales, which increases the popularity. I don't know. It's like, it's kind of like going, it's kind of like this like symbiotic relationship in a sense, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I also wonder about like what it tells us about the utility of these charts. I'm thinking about that, that moment we talked about a little bit earlier in the, in the late fifties, um, like a really early episode of the show. We talked about this quite a bit, uh, an interview um, on the episode, uh, you can't segregate the airwaves, which is, you know, the charts in, there's a, a separate like, R&B and like mainstream like white chart in the mid 50s and then in like by 58 they're just the same chart like (laughs) because people are just buying the same music to the point where they collapse them together and then by like 65 66 the listening habits are different enough that they're pulled out again because there's there's like substantive differences and I do wonder if thinking about what you're saying about kind of like pop culture and the way it connects and there's there's off obviously with taylor swift and it's like a whole different subject but like the intense connection like parasocial connection that a huge number of people have with uh you know a handful of like almost like quasi-religious cultural figures you know what i mean that they really feel strong that that, that that their relationship to Taylor Swift that various fans have clearly is like profoundly meaningful for them. And it's a huge number of people. But that can also mean that the huge group of people is really separated from, let's say, whatever general listening world I'm part of. And that actually maybe we're not particularly well served in any meaningful sense by having that universe and whatever general like the largest version of my universe on mostly the same charts because they're just too separate and that in kind of a a segmented listening environment you actually you would want five top 100 charts figured out however you want that kind of give you a better sense of the, the 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 various dynamics within within listening society i mean and like, if you think, okay, and, and if you think about like the idea of the Hot 100 chart as emerging in the 50s as tied to like a specific mass cultural moment, right? This idea that there's, you know, there's three TV stations, there's like four radio networks, 
that there's really like a fairly centralized set of like true engines of mass culture. And if we're really past that moment, maybe adding it all up from the perspective of the mid 20th century is like, it tells us something, I guess, but maybe not, maybe it's not the most useful something in the way that it was even in the nineties. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm also kind of curious as to like, I think those are good points, but I also am kind of curious as like, what does the world look like without charts? Like right now, and like like and and if and part of me feels like, is it just then these like massive, you know, multi tentacle like corporate juggernauts just dictating and directing us through algorithms and like mass culture, and not to say that the charts aren't affected by that because they clearly are, but like but there I are don't... a point where you can fu- there's a point of tension there, there's a point of, of friction where sometimes things happen on the charts that the majors don't expect or don't want yeah yeah, yeah exactly you know and so it's, it's almost in a weird way like i mean i think like we've spent probably almost over an hour now like being like yeah you know i mean the fucking charts like what the fuck you know that's corporate but, but now that like we're at this at the end point it's kind of like i don't really want a world like without a chart either because because of that friction and that tension that like there is that possibility where like the algorithm and the corporate slugs like are all wrong and and like we have the numbers to prove it kind of thing uh, kind of I mean, thing i guess i'm i'm not saying though like that it's you need a world without no charts. no i know no I'm i was just yeah i was just like, offering like an alternative yeah no 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 but i'm saying like i'm just thinking again about like the sense of different charts so in in our episode about k-pop i learned the extraordinary fact that in korea south korea there's a chart that is karaoke Fuck right yes. it's like <laughs> what Fuck songs yes. what was the number one performed song on karaoke the previous we didn't weekend? start the fire by billy joel every every week we didn't start the and like and but like that blew my mind because for a second it's like oh like that is a chart that tells you something meaningful that like if i'm an artist and i know my song is number one karaoke but maybe it's not being listened to on the radio or other things like it tells you certain things it tells you about uh the relationship between a song and society and like i want more like, I want more of those charts, maybe. Like, I would love to see the top TikTok. Like, at, and Billboard might do this. So, uh, like, do at me for my, like, lack of research into all of Billboard's many chart offerings. But, like, I feel like a lot, like, de-emphasizing central charts that can tell us certain things, but maybe in a divided musical society are not as useful. And more charts that illustrate like concretely bounded communities and their relationship to their musical practices or the state takes over the charts (laughs) but that wouldn't fix anything because still which what are they counting and how and why yeah yeah well a complex regional charts i want to know what songs are being streamed in new york city and i just want to emphasize that like i feel like this is a um We've mentioned the charts before, and we've long been wanting to do an episode that like deals with them more fully. But I would say that this is very much one of our like first passes, um, and that we'll probably come back to this this topic in in future episodes, uh, maybe even ones that are focused on like specific moments in charts related to like 
specific musical moments. Like I know that like the grunge explosion and the creation of the alternative rock chart, the, the creation of the alternative rock chart really helped lay the, 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 the like counting foundation for, for grunge in the nineties and things like that. But that this is like a first pass on trying to work out this really important, um, like both like, like reflection of American listening, music listening and society, but also like, this incredibly powerful shaping tool for shaping it. Yeah, we'll be we'll be back when um a boogie with the hoodie comes out with like a like a hundred <laughs> song like album that 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 takes up the entire chart. Or when uh, Little Nas X returns fully to country. <laughs> You'd love to see it. Love to see it. Definitely waiting for that um, Florida Georgia Line Little Nas X uh, collab. Uh, I, that I would be it good. Might, actually, I, I think it actually might happen. I think it probably happened Morgan Wallen first. Look, dude. If it's meant to, if it's meant to be, it'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll tie a bow on this episode. Thanks for listening. Please follow us on all the socials. Rate and review. Uh, please rate and review us. Uh, music by Bird Language. We have one review, a five star review that said our tips made his this person's music biz skyrocket. So, like, if our tips made your music biz skyrocket, leave us leave us a review. And I mean, feel free to like find me on Venmo and leave me a tip as well. Um, yeah. Till next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.